What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Laura Jane Grace formed Against Me as a punk rock band in the late 1990s and has seen the band in her own life undergo dramatic change. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Against Me joins us this week to talk about reinvention and rock and roll. Then Greg and I review the new album from Blur. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to review the new reunion album from Blur. We never thought we'd see this one, Greg. In recent weeks, we have denigrated cash-in reunion tours and the idea of a band name as a brand, but this is a group we're actually excited about. We both believe this was one of the bands in the 90s right up there with Nirvana or My Bloody Valentine in terms of influence. Later on in the show, Jim, we're going to talk about whether or not this new album still brings the goods, but uh, first we've got some music news. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see That is Benny E. King with Stand By Me. Benny E. King dead at the age of 76 on April 30th in New Jersey. Stand By Me, everybody seems to know that song, right, Jim? I mean, if you've ever been in a wedding, you've probably heard it. It's a classic father-daughter type of dance at uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of weddings that I've been to. And it is a standard, without a doubt. Benny King wrote that song. He performed it. It was one of his first big solo hits in the early 60s. Defined a style of soul singing, coming out of that doo-wop era as the lead vocalist in The Drifters, and then later on going to a, a storied solo career. He was born Benjamin Earl Nelson in 1938 in North Carolina, but uh, quickly ended up in Harlem. He was working in a luncheonette in 1956, the story goes, when a local impresario heard him singing and invited him to do a show at the Apollo as an opening act with a group called the Five Crowns. The Five Crowns went on to usurp the Drifters. The, they outperformed the Drifters that night, mm. the story goes. The manager of the Drifters heard them and said, no, you're going to be the Drifters now because <laughs> these guys ain't cutting it. And he was primarily just enamored with, uh, with Benny King's voice. That mixture of soul grit and suave smoothness that he brought to his singing really bridged the gap between the doo-wop and, and the soul eras. He had a number of hits with the Drifters. Great combination there. Uh, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller writing a lot of those songs. Uh, there Goes My Baby, released in 1959, a number two hit. Dance With Me, This Magic Moment, I Count the Tears, Lonely Winds. And then King went solo. Spanish Harlem, again, written by Lieber with uh, Phil Spector's assistance, reached the top ten. Stand By Me was the standard that he recorded in 1961. And it again reappeared on the charts in 1986, the soundtrack for that Rob Reiner film of the same name. 
So King ended up having hits in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Impressive. And continued to perform basically till very near the end of his life. The track I want to play that I think represents that life so well is Save the Last Dance for Me, one of his last great hits uh, with the Drifters. It was written by Doc Pomus. The story goes that uh, Pomus, who was wheelchair-bound with polio since he was a child, on his wedding day, came up with the idea for this particular song. He, he told his, uh, his wife, his new bride, you know, you can go dance with the other guys. I'm not going to be able to take you out on the dance floor, but just remember, you're going to be going home with me tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm your new husband. And it, it's a beautiful song, a beautiful sentiment that Benny King really just captured in one of his greatest moments on record. Save the last dance for me from Ben E. King and the Drifters, 1960 on Sound Opinions. You can dance every day Dance with the guy who gives you the eye, let him hold you tight. You can smile, every smile for the man who held your hand neath the pale moonlight. But don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're gonna be. So darling, save the last dance for me. Oh, I know, oh, I know that the music's yes, fine like sparkling oh, wine. Go and have your yes, fun. I know. Oh, I know. Laugh and sing. Yes, I know. But while we're oh, apart, don't give your yes, heart to anyone. Oh, but yes, don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're gonna be. So, darling, say the last dance for me. Don't you know I love you so Can't you feel it when we touch I will never, never let you go I love you oh so much You can dance, you can dance Go and carry you on dance. Till the night is gone dance. And it's time to you go You can dance If he asks You can dance If you're all alone you can, can he take you, you home dance. You must tell him no Cause don't forget who's taking you home And in whose arms you're gonna be So die, say the last dance for me That's Benny King of the Drifters with Save the Last Dance for Me Ben E. King, dead at the age of 76 That's the original version of Louie Louie, a song by Richard Berry, a Los Angeles musician that he wrote on a napkin and recorded in 1957. We're playing it because we sadly have another obit. Jack Ely, the leader of the Kingsmen, who made Louie Louie the garage band anthem of all time, one of the touchstones of the birth of punk, said a critic, Lester Bangs. He is dead at the age of 71. The lore behind the Kingsman's version of Louie Louie, released in 1963, recorded in one take at a Portland studio. The lore is just legendary. There have been tales for years. Ely was so drunk that he messed up the words. This prompted the attorney general at the time, Robert Kennedy, to be outraged when he heard his daughters playing the single that these were filthy, dirty lyrics. The FBI investigated whether this huge radio hit, in fact, had hidden messages and filthy lyrics. 
The New York Times says Ely had just had his braces tightened. He was only 19 years old. There was one mic for the entire band. It was suspended in the ceiling to get kind of a live frat house vibe, right? Animal House made the song famous. Uh, And Ely was shouting the whole time, so he messed up the lyrics. He only had one take at it. One of the great one-hit wonders. But man, without those three chords, without that crazy, just out-of-control vibe of Louie Louie, I don't think there'd be punk rock. Here's a little bit of the Kingsman's Louie Louie from 1963 in tribute to Portland's Jack Ely, dead at the age of 71. Listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song True Trans Soul Rebel by Against Me. The band originally formed in Gainesville, Florida, now based in Chicago, and it made one of our favorite albums of 2014, Transgender Dysphoria Blues. As you can guess from that title, the lead singer, Laura Jane Grace, is a transgender woman who came out publicly in 2012. We're at a watershed moment now, Greg, for trans visibility, and not only because of Bruce Jenner coming out last month. Laura Jane has been very open in documenting some of the struggles and triumphs of her experience via her music. That's right, Jim. When the band formed in 1997, Laura Jane was known as Thomas James Gable. She and James Bowman created a sound that meshed classic rock, punk rock, folk, to highlight global issues as well as everyday human struggles. Laura Jane Grace and the band joined us late last year while on tour, and we began our conversation with the origin story. It really starts with me and James, because, I mean, I've known James since first day of high school, which was 1994, correct? Five or something like that. And uh, we grew up playing in bands together. So I started doing Against Me just like I was playing in other bands and um, recorded just like 10 songs on a four track and made a demo tape and gave it out to friends. And shortly thereafter, James was like, sent me a version of that with him playing guitar over it and said that if he let or if I let him in the pan to go on tour, he'd buy all the guitar strings. <laughs> <laughs> you were 17, right? 
at the time, yeah. Uh-huh. What was the big hero? I've read Billy Bragg comparisons, but was that kind of – because it was always socially conscious and uh, activist in a way from the beginning. Right. Well, I never really, – I didn't actually get into Billy Bragg until people started saying that. I'd never heard of him before. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, I'll check out Billy Bragg. But – you know, definitely like the scene that the band came up in was the Florida radical activist scene. What sparked that sense of, you know, there's a world outside of my bedroom and I need to get involved? Um, I got arrested when I was 14 years old. You know, I got I got into punk rock because I got I was getting beat up a lot. And uh, at first it was really just about nihilism. And I liked Sid Vicious and thought that that was the way to go. <laughs> I didn't really plan on living that long. But then I got beat up and arrested when I was like 14 years old by a group of police officers charged with battery on an officer resisting arrest with violence. Was convicted of both felonies. By the time I was 15, spent like a summer on house arrest, which James kept me company on. And that was just a moment that really politicized me. So I started doing like a fanzine and got into more political bands like Crass and stuff like that and and just kind of led me down that path. Mike Watt has got this great expression, you know, you, you want to feel that wall to push against. And and that's what makes the, the music gets better when you feel that wall against your shoulder. And it sounds like that's uh, that was the inspiration for a lot of music, the fact that you were able to have this outlet as a, a guitarist, a, a songwriter. Sure. Uh, was kind of a way of processing some of this stuff. Oh, totally. And that's the way it's always been for me. And, you know, especially back then where it was like, you know, way more isolated feeling, especially in Florida, because no bands ever really went down to South Florida because you got to turn around and go right back up, you know. Um, so it was just kind of us inventing a scene as we went along back then, you know, pre-internet days or whatever, and, and really using music as an outlet for self-expression. When did it become a band? I know James joined... And it became an actual band as a, as opposed to a solo project. But how did it sort of evolve from solo project into a, into a full-fledged band? Um, started playing with my buddy, our buddy, me and James's buddy, Kevin, on drums. And at the time, you know, the the real, like, uh, we didn't we didn't have money, you know, like, and I had an acoustic guitar, so it was like, that's what I'm playing, because that's all I have, and James was like, I have a Les Paul and an amp, so that's what James is playing, and Kevin, our drummer, was like, I have pickle buckets, and a <laughs> kick drum and a snare drum, so that's what I'm playing, and no cymbals, and, you know, we did one tour, it was a three-piece, and then we, our friend Dustin, who we grew up with, kind of started playing on bass, and then we were a four-piece, and then from there, it was kind of no turning back. In a lot of ways, if we look at the history of Against Me, it's the history of the punk underground for the last 20 years. Because you guys wind up on Fat Records, which is one of the signature underground punk labels of that time. Then, of course, get signed to the big time, Sire Warners. One fantastic album, New Wave, produced by Butch Vig. And then a second album that kind of comes out and, and Sire decides, eh, we don't love you anymore. We just fired everybody that had been on the staff, and nobody knows who you are, so... <laughs> Uh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of gridlock. I mean, yeah, it, it's, you know, we as a band have kind of followed the the classic punk trajectory of you start off, you know, making demo tapes and, and putting out seven inches and then you go on to a indie label, a slightly bigger indie label, sign to a major label, get dropped from the major label mm, and then yeah. then actually like really start being a band, you know. We're going to get a song, and then I want to get back to that because I want to ask you about your thoughts about the underground. What are you going to play for us? Let's do Unconditional Love first. <sighs> Unconditional Love by Against Me. <laughs>
Unconditional Love by Against Me, live on Sound Opinions. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, more with Laura Jane Grace and Against Me. And later in the show, we review the long-awaited reunion album from Britpop heroes Blur. Stay tuned. Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and you're hearing a little bit from our guest this week, Against Me. Lead singer Laura Jane Grace has always been an outspoken person, whether it's about politics, social issues, or her own gender transitioning. I've always been a fan of her ability to blend socially pertinent lyrics with killer hooks and melodies, as you'll hear in the next couple of live performances from the band. And let's mention that some of the subject matter and language may be too much for sensitive ears. As we return to our conversation with Laura that we recorded late last year, I asked Laura if she believes that music, specifically punk rock, can still deliver social consciousness in today's cluttered world. It's a good question, you know. I like to think that that there is a still real, still a relevant punk movement. I mean, for me, that's always what it's about as you get older and you're punk and you're growing up is that you continually have to question the relevancy of to your life and how the politics apply to you. But as far as like rebellion and commodification and everything like that, it's really tough, especially, you know, going into the uncharted territory that, that we are with the internet age and everything like that. And and uh, the way that's affecting and changing music. I'm hopeful because there is still really a lot of vinyl collectors out there, and I think mm. that that will always remain, and that that's a real sign that there are still people who really love music as, like, uh, you know, collecting it, listening to it, the culture that surrounds it, you know, hanging out, listening to records, turning your friends onto new bands and things like that. The whole notion of addressing the world uh, through song, it's, it's an old notion. It's one that's been around for centuries, and people say, well, where are the protest songs? Bands are still writing them. Do you ever feel like you're, you know, who are you writing them for? Is it getting through? Are people listening? Do they care? 
I really kind of stopped trying to think about things like that after a point just because I've been so continually surprised over the years of the reverberations that songs I've written will have, you know, and I've never been able to predict that of how there'll be some songs that you write and you're like, oh, well, this is a throwaway song, but then you end up playing it for 10 years and you'll have people coming up and telling you the way it affected their life and what it meant to them. And that's part of songwriting is that, you know, even if it's a song that has a really direct, overt meaning to it, the listeners, of course, going to interpret it on their own and they're going to relate it to how they feel and the, what it means to them. And and sometimes, like, what's a protest song and what isn't a protest song is really fine lines, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. To quote Ian Mackay, your emotions are nothing but politics. So so going on a label like Sire and actually having a couple of records pretty high up on the charts, that takes you a long way from that bedroom in, in Florida as a kid, you know? Right. Uh, working with a guy like Butch Vig. That experience... Looking back on it, is something that you're glad you went through that experience? Because I, I guess it didn't end up so well, but was it an experience that you were able to look back on and say, yeah, we, th- that helped us some way? It, it ended up really well, in fact, though, is the thing. I mean, of course, like, you know, there might have been some negative relationships or some relationships that uh, fell out at the end of it or whatever. But as an experience as a whole, you know, Moments like that are so fulfilling because you you can look back and be like, that is where I started and this is where I am now. And Sire was the home of the Ramones and the replacements and Madonna, you know, who was like my first musical memory. And to have a record label be like, here's a million and a half dollars that you do not have to pay back to make two (laughs) records. And you can keep one of the records when you're done and you get to work with the producer who made Nevermind. And, And really we lucked out with him in particular in that it could have very well been a situation where you get the big name producer and he wouldn't have really cared about you. But he was someone who genuinely cared about our band and who was really like willing to share his knowledge and an opportunity that I felt that it would behoove me to take advantage of. So I did. I paid attention. And so we got a bunch of money out of it. We got to tour the world multiple times. We got to make music with incredible producers and engineers. I can't sleep. The only downside was that some people then found that to uh, be damaging to our credibility in some way, which was ridiculous. And so you have those moments where you're realizing that and you have people in the punk scene who are like being like, oh, well, you're a sellout. And you're Mm. on the other hand, you're like, I'm living my dream right now. I'm happy every day when I wake up to be be doing what I'm doing. Why don't we get another (laughs) two? Okay. You want to play Black Me Out? How does that sound? talk that way again I don't want to know people like that anymore as if there was an obligation as if I owed you something black me out I wanna on the walls of your house I wanna chop those brass rings I'll get back Can't 
Wow. <laughs> That's uh, Black Me Out from Against Me, the new album, Transgender Dysphoria Blues. So, Laura, a lot of people make the assumption, made the leap, that that was the ultimate kiss-off to major label execs. You know, the word, the pimps and the, uh, you know, the gold rings. and <laughs> Everybody made that leap. Uh, explain right. what you were thinking when you were writing that song, because it is a great kiss-off song to someone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, really, it's meant more as a kiss-off song to myself, you know? I, like, it really was about reaching a point of abandon where, you know, I remember at the time when I wrote it, it was coming out of the major level experience and coming out of a lot of, like, hard times that as a band we were going through. And, uh, we, you know, we broke up for a brief period of time in 2010, was it, James? And uh, that was kind of during the time when I wrote it and also grappling really heavily with gender dysphoria. So mm. really major label stuff was like I could have cared less. Mm. I was going through what I was going through and reaching the point where I was just kind of like, screw it. You know, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to sit on my back porch and I'm going to drink beers and mm. I'm going to go on tour and play shows for fun with my band if we're still going to be able to be a band. And then if I still feel the same way, I'm going to transition in a year. So it was just like reaching that point of feeling like I'd been in so many situations where I was just continually selling myself out, you know, and I didn't like the person I was. I didn't like the way I related to other people. And I just wanted to cease to exist. Wow. That's a theme on the album, the death wish and grappling with existence. You are transitioned now. Laura Jane. Well, life is a continuous transition. Okay. But, mm. yeah. For all of us, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> We're transitioning into dirt. It's fascinating to me that 70% of the record was written before you began the process, personally, I've read, of transitioning. The rest of it finished afterward. This was all in the stew. Along with a lot of emotional stuff, I've read that you said, I had a nervous breakdown at one point making this record. Mm-hmm. When I moved to Chicago, right before moving to Chicago, I like, we finished the record in South Georgia and I had a nervous breakdown while finishing the record and then I moved to Chicago. You talk about transition, everything seemed to be changing all at once. The band, you know, your, your future, whether you're going to be having this band at all, I mean, that seemed like a lot of stuff all at one time. Yeah, and it was dark, definitely the end, like... Adam came in at the beginning of that year. We, like, need, you know, the drummer we were playing with at the time bailed on us, ditched out, and, like, we had a tour coming up to go to Australia, and Adam, like, was like, I can fill in. And then we, we you know, got along really well, played really well, and then was like, hey, do you want to record with us? And he recorded, but it was still, like, this gray area of going forward, especially then after Andrew quit, of, like, well, we don't even have a bass player now. There's three of us, and me and James are, like, in this studio in South Georgia that used to be a car garage where all the walls are painted black and the floor, and the engineer carries a handgun on his hip. Cheerful and, like, place. <laughs> bag boys at the grocery store telling me I'm going to burn in hell. It was oh. just dark. It was, like, a really dark time. How did you, how did you stick it out, James? Uh, I was just trying to hold everything together. <laughs> I was like, yeah. we can do this. Come on. We're almost there. Um, I was like, just eat this Valium. You'll be okay. <laughs> okay, have two. You'll be all right. Um, yeah, I don't know. We were so close. It just took so long like from start to finish, and I could see. I, it, I mean, it wasn't the most ideal situation of, of making a record and finishing it in that way, but it was like – it was just so close. So it was just like, if we can just finish this, like, yeah. we can just take a break after yeah. that and we'll be done and see what happens. So. so do you think, do you guys both think that you accomplished something special here? I mean, the catharsis and the anger and the range of emotions and the storytelling, because it's not all autobiographical. You're portraying characters that, that the band knew, that you loved, that got hurt. Sure. I think you did something special. Do you? I, 
I feel really lucky to be here, and I'm really proud of it. And I know that, like, as a band, it, like, feels really good, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the, to be on the other side of that and to be like, oh, wow, like, there's a future, you know? We're in at a point, I thought, there's no future. And to be able to be like, we just are wrapping up a year of, like, incredible touring where we went out, released a record, traveled around the world, like, and became a band the four of us you know while the name has existed for a while like the four of us became a band over yeah. the course of this last year and i've read you've been asked a number of times why do you guys tour so much and you're like we have to that's the economics of the world Completely. you know yeah uh-huh. you wouldn't exist if you weren't playing live right especially i mean we're at this point a completely independent band you yeah. know we're on our own record label you know we have people that we work with and everything like that but it's our own operation you know when it comes down to it and that's you know we 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 never really blew up as a band, really. You know, we, yeah. like, got a good record deal, and we had a lot of high-profile stuff. But touring-wise, we've just been really lucky that it's been consistent. Well, one of the things I think that translate has always translated about the band was was the honesty, the sense that you were being real every second you were up there. It wasn't being fake. When people talk about this record, and with good reason, I mean, they, they, they talk about the whole idea of putting it out there right on the title, Transgender Dysphoria Blues. But it's always been there because I think, you know, you've been writing songs about this for a number of years. Did Were you, fr- you know, ocean, the ocean, right? In, right, in which is where there's not metaphoric at all. There's no more direct you can be than saying, if I could have chosen, I would have been born a woman, you know? Kind of, was it disappointing in any way that nobody seemed to pick up on that at the time? Or? Well, that, I mean, that part, that song in particular was everything like kind of culminating to the point. Larry, after X amount of years and X amount of songs and records where, you know, other lyrics were very like veiled in metaphor and not very direct and feeling like, wow, no one's really even picking up on any of this. So mm-hmm. how direct can I be and still not get questioned? <laughs> um, and I, you know, I remember in the studio being like, anyone think that sounds weird should i change that lyric and butch is like no it's great did you know what he was talking about james no idea you knew her as well as anybody been there forever yeah i don't know i wasn't surprised when you know when she came out and told everybody but i i yeah i don't know i just never put it together yeah are you gonna play one of the songs more directly about transition laura uh i don't know what are we gonna play what do you want to (laughs) play Okay, yeah, let's do that. Let's do the blues. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's <laughs>
Transgender Dysphoria Blues, the title track from the new album. So, Laura, we, uh, you know, for people who are listening to this show, I, I think it's an educational opportunity, too, to explain what you went through. I've known two people personally in my life who've had this experience, one who went through it very young, one who went through it at, at a much uh, older age. Two very different experiences. But these were essentially, I think they felt alone. They were very private figures. They went through this privately. You're much more of a public figure going through something like this. And it's daunting, no matter what level you go through it on. Explain your feelings. And I know this is a, this is a novel. This is a book <laughs> that you well, could and, go and through. Well, and I don't – I'm not sure. But, I, I had a, my best friend in college as well, a, mm-hmm. a great rock writer, Debbie Sprague. When she called me and said, I'm going to make this transition, and you say – that's wonderful. You know, I'll, I'll always love you. But I have no idea actually what transition means. Maybe, right? Do you, Greg? Well, you get ideas about it. But I think what, what I'd like you to talk about, Laura, is just, you know, for an audience that is new to this subject or has, has, is totally uneducated about it, what about this experience should they know? Um, well, there's a lot of things that you should know. Um, and I agree with you. I try to take every interview as an education opportunity for not only the people that I'm in the room directly talking to, but the people who are listening. I think that coming out as genderqueer, coming out as trans, and start beginning transition, there's two sides to that. And I think really, especially for myself, uh, starting that at like 30 years old or whatever, um, obviously that was 30 years of that building up in my head. So a lot of that weight was on me and just the act of embracing that, coming out with it and accepting it relieved so much weight and made me realize that it's not that big of a thing, you know, that there is no like... I don't know, you are not really actually changing as a person inside in any way, you know? The real transition, I think, oftentimes is for other people's perception because what you're asking is, can you see me in a different way? And then the nuts and bolts of it are whatever, um, but, you know, some people choose to do things different ways. And oftentimes, like, that's that's private and personal, you know? Like, um, if you're going to seek hormone replacement therapy or seek surgeries or anything like that, that is obviously, you know up to people's discretion and not what defines someone as trans or as female or as male. People should accept that some females have penises and some males have vaginas. I've met them. I know this. But when it comes down to it, you know, you're just, I think it's it's about growing up as a person and accepting a truth about yourself and coming out with that. I, I always say, you know, when it when in doubt, feel free to ask someone what pronouns they would prefer to be used or how they'd like to be treated or anything like that. Because some people don't even want he or she. They want them or they or there, um, which mm-hmm. is correct English, too. I, I, I think that there's, you know, it's okay to not know everything about a subject and it's okay to ask. And it's, but it's definitely best to be like uh, polite about that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no in such life, thing as a stupid general. question. There's, but there are things as rudely phrased questions. <laughs> you know, when you talk about the truth about yourself, is it something that is always there, like, you know, from the first conscious moment, uh, this feeling, or is it something that comes to, comes to people at different times about themselves, do you feel? I'm sure it comes to people at different times. For me, it was the first moment of self-realization, of, like, recognizing myself in someone. And that was Madonna, who mentioned earlier, of watching her on TV 
and being like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. That's who I want to be when I grow up, a performer, a, you know, an artist mm-hmm. or whatever, and thinking that I could be exactly like her, and then immediately after, at four years old or whatever, realizing the misalignment between my brain and my body. So mm-hmm. that was the experience, and that was living with that. And growing up, you know, I didn't hear the story of someone transitioning until I was probably like 14 or 15. I had never heard the word transgender until I was probably like 19 or 20. You know, like trans people were always just the butt of a joke. My exposure to them were... Um, Silence of the Lambs, Ace Ventura, The Crying Game. And there were no positive role models out there, no positive examples. The first thing I found was a like little blurb on Renee Richards, who was a tennis player who transitioned in the 70s. And that mm-hmm. was like paragraph, yeah. you know, two inches wide and, and like not very much info. Yeah, is, and it, is it tough now that you're one of the uh, role models? Um, well, That's a big burden. I have a platform, you know, I, yeah. I get that. And, and, um, I want to do the most with that platform that I can. But part of that platform for me has been connecting with other people and trying to give them my platform as well and share that with them so that they can tell their stories that are very positive, people doing very cool things and like living really healthy, productive lifestyles. It's been great having Laura Jane Grace, James Bowman, Adam Willard, Inge Johansson. Thank you, guys. It's really been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. You don't worry about tomorrow anymore Cause you're dead Or does anything still echo? Is there any trace left? And we want to hear from you. With gender issues in the air now, how do you feel about Laura Jane's own struggle? Has she given you inspiration? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, a review of the new album from Blur. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. That is the song Go Out, the first single from the eighth album by Blur, The Magic Whip. 
Greg, Blur came together in 1989 in London in the wake of the success of the Stone Roses and that Manchester psychedelic dance scene formed by guitarist, multi-instrumentalist, sonic wizard Graham Coxon and that vocalist personality Damon Albarn. That's a name that's known much more in the States today for his work with Gorillaz and his various globetrotting curatorial world albums. But with Blur, this group went through several transitions. Initially, that kind of psychedelic dance sound, and then the sound that would come to be called Britpop, you know, that famous feud with Oasis, Oasis dominating the charts, but Blur, the critics' darling. Blur almost broke up in 1996, but came back reinvigorated after Albarn tapped into what was happening in American indie rock. That's the period that yielded the song most Americans know the band for, Song 2. Blur made one album without Coxon at the end, Think Tank, and then went on hiatus of 12 years. Coxon put out a lot of what he called sci-fi folk solo recordings. Albarn, as I said, did Gorillas, all sorts of other projects. And then, unexpectedly, the band came together again. First some reunion shows, and then on tour in the East, while in Hong Kong, they began some recordings. Damon didn't think much came out of those sessions, produced by original Blur producer Stephen Street, but Coxon and Street continued to work on them. Eventually, Albarn added his part. Now we have this album that's named after a kind of Asian firecracker, The Magic Whip. Let's play a track from it, and we'll come back and we'll give our reviews. This is the song I broadcast from Blur, from its eighth album, The Magic Whip, on Sound Opinions. broadcast from the new Blur album, The Magic Whip. Jim, one of those records I think we never thought we'd see because uh, Blur was just in in tatters. Even when Think Tank came out in in 2003, Coxon had left the band. He was so fed up with Albarn. Albarn was so fed up with him. 
Alex James and uh, Dave Roundtree just sounded like they were along for the ride on that record. It was an Albarn solo album in everything but name. And Albarn has, you know, really taken off in, in recent years in terms of developing projects outside of Blur. He seemed to have no need to go back with these guys. I mean, the, the lure of the cash, I think, brought these boys together. Oh, and for I the most know. cynical reasons, I think in 2009, 2010, they started touring. And yes, I understand there was a celebratory vibe. But Blur was never about nostalgia, and it seemed to be sinking into that morass of nostalgia. And I think they were grappling with some of those questions when they wound up in that studio in, in Hong Kong for a few days together. And, you know, the whole idea of what, what the heck are we doing? Are we going backward? You know, are we still a band? And I think this record grapples with some of those questions very openly. There's a song on here, My Terracotta Heart, where Albarn sings about the relationships within the band. I, I don't think we can hear it any other way. We were more like brothers, but that was years ago. And I think this, this record is really about feeling out of step, out of touch with the people closest to you, and finding a way to reconcile. There's never a direct song about naming names or naming the band, but I think that's the smaller issue here, and of course Albarn spins that out into to sort of a more of a worldview on this record. So it works on that level. They're being very honest about where they are now. They're not trying to recreate the past. The other thing that, you know, Albarn has been doing all those world music records, mm-hmm. he's filtering some of those influences into the songs, but the songs are much better than the songs he had on his solo record and that last Gorillaz record, that laptop Gorillaz record mm-hmm. that he did. I think he needed Coxon. I think he needed Alex James and Dave Roundtree to filter some of these ideas into those really melodic songs. Even the slow ones, even the soft ones, even the atmospheric ones have got hooks on them. And that's what I think really distinguishes this work from some of Albarn's other recent work without these guys. It's a very strong return. I had no expectations for this record whatsoever. I was more than pleasantly surprised with it. I think it's a buy-it record from Blur. Well, I'm shocked that you love it as much as you do, because I am the Blur superfan. I've written as much about Blur as any band in my career, even contributed to a book called Rock and Roll Cage Match, where I called it No Contest, this nonsense that Oasis wasn't fit to touch Damon Albarn's shoes, let me tell you. (laughs) That having been said, look, this is no park life. This is no modern life is rubbish. Those are the two Blur albums I'd reach for first, heading to the desert island. Coxon absolutely is needed by Albar, and these guys are much better together, but they're slowing down. There's a certain jauntiness that I love about Blur that's missing. Now, you know, you're starting to hit age 50. I understand. We all, I'm slowing down. I'm 51, all right? But I think they trip up a few times when it gets a little too languid, which I was willing to buy from Albarn's solo album. Uh, I'm not willing to buy from Blur. There are five absolutely great songs. New World Towers, Pyongyang, Get Out, that whole Major Tom thing that's in Spacemen, and I Broadcast, which we just played. There's a couple of really bad songs. I think the the Blur by Numbers, Lonesome Street is a disaster. There's a bad sea shanty called Ong Ong, and there's the worst song anybody with Blur's ever been connected to since Mr. Tembo, that Mm. elephant song Mm. from Albarn's uh, solo album, The Ice Cream Man. Boy, that annoys me. That's just like written for a children's music box or something. Uh, you know, look, it's New Blur, five great songs by New Blur, a couple that are just filler and a couple that stink. That's getting a buy it from me because it's, you know, it's Blur and they're back, but not quite as enthusiastic as your buy it. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to visit with former New Order bassist Peter Hook talking about New Order as well as Joy Division. 
We got some thank yous to say on the way out, Greg. Adam Yaffe and Andrew Gill helped with our recording of Against Me. And Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Come on, Anna. Answer your phone. Answer your phone. Pick up the receiver. I know that you're at home. Answer your phone. Answer your phone. New messages. Hey, Jen and Greg. It's Heather calling from Seacoast, New Hampshire. I want to tell you how much I loved listening to your jazz episode. It was really a treat for me to hear that some people are trying to break down the myth that jazz is for old people or jazz is boring. It's as varied as you want it to be, and there's so much out there. I've been listening to it my whole life, and I'm still learning new stuff and finding new things. If someone out there is looking to expand their knowledge, I think a good place to start for someone who loves guitar virtuosos, Django Reinhardt, the stuff that he did with Stéphane Grappelli and the Quintet of the Hot Club of France, was amazing. You, you put it on and you can't help but be happy. Of course, you want to drink wine and eat cheese and live in France for the rest of your life, but it's pretty amazing stuff. Thanks. Hi, my name is Dave. I'm calling from El Sobrante, California. I just finished listening to the great jazz for a non-jazz audience show, but I really think that you guys overlooked something really important, which is the connection between psychedelic rock and Indian-influenced raga-type music, sort of you could look at the Revolver era Beatles or a lot of other things. There's a band that mixes jazz and rock uh, in a way that I don't think anyone's ever done, and that is Magma from France, still going strong after 40 years. And... Uh, and I don't think there's a better example of any of that type of collective music. Hi, this is Marcy in LaGrange Park, Illinois, and I'm calling to share uh, a song for Mother's Day, Doris Day's Secret Love. Once I had a secret That lived within the heart of me. I'm one of nine kids, and after my mom uh, was pregnant with about kid number three, she would start whistling or singing Doris Day's Secret Love to my dad to let him know that she was pregnant again. And during her pregnancies, she would sing that song to those of us who were already in the household so that we understood that the baby was our secret too. So it was really kind of wonderful actually to know that for a time I was my mom's secret love. Just how wonderful you are 
Jim, Greg, your old buddy Fred Mills here, calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. On your uh, band versus brand comments, I can weigh in on the Who because I just saw them here in Raleigh and was completely knocked out. I'm not kidding. I say this as a fan who first saw them in 71 on the Who's Next Tour, and I also boycotted the Kenny Jones era, having been obviously a devotee Keith Moon and a bit of a pure snob back then, at least when it came to bands carrying on after the death of a key member. But the other night, in Pete and Roger, I saw a real fire in the belly quality going on up there. Those guys were so getting off on stuff they haven't performed in decades. It was just absolutely electric in that arena. Jesus, I can now, I can go move into the old Rock Critics retirement home now with absolutely no regrets. So go see them, guys. Trust me on this one. Take care. Always enjoy the show. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.